0: Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast. For teens, I'm Josh Downs and today's episode is episode 32 We're going to be taking a look at Romans chapters 1 through 6 today, the power of God unto salvation. You know, it's not always easy to stand up for what you believe, is it? I remember, probably like many of you have experienced back when I was in high school, that it was rather difficult to live what I believed, surrounded by uh, a lot of people that didn't live life that way. It was hard to be the one that didn't want to watch a certain movie or that uh, didn't want to go to a certain party because of what would, I knew would be there or was a little more careful in the words that I would say or the jokes that I would use. I was often looked at as being a little different. That's not an easy thing to experience, especially in high school. That only continued on my mission. There were times I remember being looked at funny, uh, laughed at, teased, ridiculed, even persecuted for what I believed. In many ways, that continued on through my professional career. There have been multiple times where I would attend different meetings and was looked at as always being the strange one because I wouldn't participate in the drinking that was going on or whatever else was not uh, up to the standards that I wanted to live my life by. I've had many of those moments, and I'm sure you have as well, and I know that as young people you will continue to have those moments throughout your life, especially living in the world that we do today. Well, today's lesson is just for those kinds of times. There's some amazing principles that you can and, and will pull out of here, these chapters, to help you face those kinds of times with a little bit more faith, a little bit more confidence, and being able to stand a little more firm in what you believe. Now the background of these chapters is as follows by the time paul wrote his epistle to the roman church members who were a diverse group of jews and gentiles the church of jesus christ had grown far beyond a small band of believers from galilee about 20 years after the savior's re- resurrection there were congregations of christians almost everywhere the apostles could reasonably travel including rome the capital of a powerful empire still compared to the vastness of the roman empire the church was small and often the object of persecution in such conditions, some might feel ashamed of the gospel of christ but of course not paul he knew and testified that true power the power of god unto salvation is found in the gospel of jesus christ one of the things that i'll point out just about this particular point in time which i think is important to understand Obviously, the apostles back then didn't have things like the internet. They didn't have things like radio, or television, or cell phones, or all the other modes of communication that we have today. So, the only way for them to really communicate the the principles and doctrines of the Gospel, to correct any false practices or beliefs, was to one, either travel there in person, which often took a great deal of time and was very difficult to do, and dangerous even, or to send letters. And so keeping the church in check as far as practices and doctrine and teachings and help and support proved to be very difficult for the early apostles and leaders of the church. For that very reason, the church was just growing so fast and with so many new members coming in, bringing in so many previous beliefs with them, that it became very hard and difficult for the apostles to keep everything pure and correct in terms of doctrine and teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, letters were the best modality to be able to send that instruction, to send that direction, to send that comfort, to send that correction when needed to the different members and the the locations where they were gathered all throughout the known world at that point in time. And that is by and large what the second half of the New Testament is. It's a collection of letters and epistles, mostly written by Paul to the different saints of different cities. All around the area and so this is exactly what the book of Romans is it's an epistle written by Paul to the Saints in Rome now as young people I want to give you just a little bit of a hint a little bit of direction and maybe instruction on how to get the most out of these epistles as you read them I'll tell you, the experience I had with my 15-year-old daughter, Michaela, is probably going to be very similar to the experience that you're going to have in reading and studying these epistles and, and chapters in the second half of the New Testament. We went through and read basically chapter one of Romans, and hoping to to get some things out of it to, to talk about, but by the time we got to the end of that chapter, she basically said to me, Dad, um, I didn't understand anything I just read. <laughs> And it took me back because I remember the first time I started to read the New Testament, even just scriptures in general, the language is very different. It's very old. It's very unfamiliar to us. And so don't feel bad if you don't understand anything when you read and study these chapters. In fact, I would encourage you to take a different approach as you read and study these chapters. Not one so much for depth of understanding uh, the context as a whole but basically going through, looking for any particular verses or phrases that really stick out to you and resonate with you. Kind of like searching for gold a little bit. There's going to be a lot of stuff that you've got to go through that you may not really understand or get much out of, but every once in a while as you go through this process, you'll come across a verse or a phrase of Scripture that really jumps out to you, that becomes gold-like to you. Those are the things that I would suggest you look for and try to find as you go through and study these chapters from this point through the end of the the New Testament, looking for specific verses that are kind of like nuggets of gold. When I went back and asked my daughter, basically, was there anything, though, in that chapter that kind of stood out to you? You may not have understood what you're reading, but was there any part of it that you really liked, any verses that really jumped out to you? She said, well, yeah, there was one, Dad. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Which brings me to the first key principle for this week, which is Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This verse is a perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about and trying to find little golden nuggets through your study. Verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, again, you may not understand fully the context surrounding that verse, but you don't need to, because that's a verse that can stand on its own. We all need to develop the mindset and the strength of character and commitment that Paul had towards the gospel of Jesus Christ that is surmised in that single statement, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I remember some time ago a wonderful talk by President Monson titled Dare to Stand Alone. In which he said, as we go about living from day to day, it is almost inevitable that our faith will be challenged. We may at times find ourselves surrounded by others and yet standing in the minority or even standing alone concerning what is acceptable and what is not. Do we have the moral courage to stand firm in our beliefs, even if by so doing we must stand alone? He said in Lehi's vision of the tree of life found in 1 Nephi chapter 8, Lehi sees, among others those who hold to the iron rod until they come forth and partake of the fruit of the tree of life, which we know is a representation of the love of God. And then sadly, he said, after they partake of the fruit, some are ashamed because of those in the great and spacious building who represent the pride of the children of men, who are pointing fingers at them, scoffing at them, and they fall away into forbidden paths and are lost. What a powerful tool of the adversary is ridicule and mockery. Again, do we have the courage to stand strong and firm in the face of such difficult opposition? He then shared a wonderful story about an experience that he had as a young person in having to learn to stand alone for what he believed. He said, I believe my first experience in having the courage of my convictions took place when I served in the United States Navy near the end of World War II. Navy boot camp was not an easy experience for me, nor for anyone who endured it. For the first three weeks I was convinced my life was in jeopardy. The Navy wasn't trying to train me, it was trying to kill me. (laughs) I shall ever remember when Sunday rolled around after the first week. We received welcome news from the Chief Petty Officer. Standing at attention on the drill ground in a brisk California breeze, we heard his command, "'Today everybody goes to church. Everybody, that is, except for me. I'm going to relax.'" Then he shouted, all of you Catholics, you meet in Camp Decatur and don't come back until three o'clock. Forward march. A rather sizable contingent moved out. Then he barked out his next command. Those of you who are Jewish, you meet in Camp Henry and don't come back until three o'clock. Forward march. A somewhat smaller contingent marched out. Then he said, the rest of you Protestants, you meet in the theaters at Camp Farragut and don't come back until three o'clock forward march. Instantly, there flashed through my mind. He said the thought, Monson, you're not a Catholic. You're not a Jew. You're not a Protestant. You are a Mormon, so you just stand here. (laughs) I can assure you that I felt completely alone. Courageous and determined, yes, but alone. And then I heard the sweetest words I ever heard that chief petty officer utter. He looked in my direction and asked, and just what do you guys call yourselves? Until that very moment, I had not realized that anyone was standing beside me or behind me on the drill ground. Almost in unison, each of us replied, Mormons! It is difficult to describe the joy that filled my heart as I turned around and saw a handful of other sailors. The chief petty officer scratched his head and in an expression of puzzlement, but finally said, Well, you guys go find somewhere to meet and don't come back until 3 o'clock. Forward march. As we marched away, I thought, of the words of a rhyme I had learned in primary years before, which were, dare to be a Mormon, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known." I love that story because I love the courage that he showed and that he demonstrated in his resolve to stand there, not knowing if there was anybody else that would be standing with him, not knowing if he would be ridiculed for his belief or looked down upon, But just knowing that he had to stand true and wanted to stand true to who he was and what he believed. And that is something I want for each of you to be able to do, to be able to develop and cultivate within yourself that confidence, that determination, and that willingness and desire to stand for what you believe, even if it means standing alone. And to never give in to those that will try to shame you for doing so. It's not an easy thing to do, and there are certainly very real powers that are absolutely opposed to this work, and to you, and to your faith, and those are powers that you'll have to do battle with almost on a daily basis now in the world that we live in, but we also have access to a power greater than our own to support us and strengthen us, and maybe even steady us a little bit as we fight to stand for what we believe. President Gordon B. Hinckley said, speaking of that power that's available to us that you cannot afford as a young person to do anything that would place a curtain between you and the ministering angels in your behalf you cannot be immoral in any sense you cannot be dishonest you cannot cheat or lie you cannot take the name of God in vain or use filthy language and still have the right to the ministering of angels and really to that power from God that is available to each and every one of us. I know many of you are listening to that list, probably think, oh great, well, I've already done a few of those things. Well, you wouldn't be alone in that either. That's a part of mortality. and We've talked at length about that. You are going to make mistakes and that's okay. He went on to say if any of you has stumbled in your journey i want you to understand without any question whatsoever that there is a way back the process is called repentance our savior gave his life to provide you and me that blessed gift despite the fact that the repentance path is not easy the promises are real we have been told though your sins be as scarlet they shall be as white as snow and i will remember them no more what a statement What a blessing, what a promise. Peer pressure and the fear of what others think and their uh, need for approval is a very powerful influence in this world. And I have watched multiple times throughout my life. Students that I've worked with and taught have given into that peer pressure. I have as well, and I still do sometimes as an adult. But I know where I want to be, and I know what I want to do And I know that I want to be strong enough to be able to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in any condition, in any circumstance, and in any situation. And I am working towards that every day. And I believe if you're listening to this, that's what you want for yourself as well. And you and I can have it as we continue to move forward and repent of those times where we fall short. That's another one of Paul's verses, the little nuggets that is in here that we'll probably reference a little bit later, in which he reminds each and every one of us, for all have sinned, for all have come short of the glory of God. So instead of beating yourself up for being human and doing what was expected of you to do and what God knew you would do, let's take the steps necessary to repent and to strengthen ourselves to do better in the future. Now, a few questions for you to consider just based on this little principle of truth. Number one, how have you faced ridicule for your beliefs and for your standards and for being a member of the church? What does it mean to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does that look like in a teenager's life? What does it mean to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And what might that look like in a teenager's life? How have you had to stand alone before for what you believe? And what things or places is it hardest, do you think, for a teenager to stand alone? How can you develop a greater commitment to not be moved regardless of what others might say and do or think? And lastly, what would you tell someone who has been teased or made fun of for standing for something they believe or feel is right, even though it wasn't popular and may be wavering a little bit in their belief? And maybe lastly, and this one just kind of popped in my head as I was thinking about this, how do you think this verse applies to repentance? Because I know from my own personal experience, one of the greatest barriers between me and repentance is shame. Worrying about what others might think. Worrying about what my parents might think. Worrying about what my children might think. Worrying about what the bishop might think. All of that is shame-based. So maybe one of the best places that we can show that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ is by practicing the principle of repentance. Now for the second principle today, I'm going to take you through a little interesting block of verses here in Romans chapter 1. We're going to kind of title it, The Process of Sin. It's very insightful, the, the way that Paul takes the saints through really the potential for sin and what it leads to and i think in a lot of ways he is showing them this process to help them to recognize whenever they might be inadvertently on that path there is definitely a process to sin and steps that continue to make it worse and worse and lead to other things and other things and other things until you really become as dark as a person can possibly become and this is what he does here in these verses. And I want to start in verse 17, and we'll just kind of go through these together. And I want you, I'll, I'll give you a few things to mark. I'm going to be a little more instructive in, in this particular principle. But in verse 17, he says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the first thing I'd have you underline or mark is who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Really, the very first step is allowing shame to enter in our lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once we do that, it opens the door to us then giving in to temptation, giving in to peer pressure, doing things that we wouldn't normally do which moves us to basically hold the truth that we have in unrighteousness. That's where sin begins to enter. And there isn't any single one of us out there that hasn't at some point, and probably isn't even now, holding truth in unrighteousness. Repentance is something that we need on a weekly, if not daily basis. And so Paul is taking us from the very beginnings of sin all the way through the end so I want you to recognize that that's the first step, is just committing sin. And when we do, it's as if we hold truth in unrighteousness. Now, there is are, and are those that do not hold the truth fully. And so, they're not as accountable as we are. And therefore, cannot hold truth in the same way that we would in unrighteousness. Remember, with great power, with great knowledge, comes great responsibility. Verse 19 reads, "...because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." In other words, the truth is revealed to God, and once we have it, there is no excuse for it. What we do with it, how we hold it, determines everything. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not. Now, this is what I would have you mark next. Once we come to know God and we know the truth, when we choose to glorify Him not. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about how you would bring glory to your earthly parents. Wouldn't you do that just simply by doing anything that was good or admirable? When you do those kinds of things, not only do you bring glory to yourself, but you bring glory to those that brought you here, those that love and support you, those that are part of your life and your family, and particularly your parents. So whenever we do anything that is good, we are in effect glorifying God, especially when we give Him the credit for all that we do. So when those that know God stop glorifying Him or stop doing things that bring Him glory, And then, as Paul points out next, neither were thankful. Underline that phrase. So not only do we stop doing things that bring glory to God, but we stop being thankful for things that we have and things that He does for us, but became vain in their imaginations. Mark that one. Or in other words, when we begin to let pride come into our lives, as it says, and their foolish heart was darkened, we begin to lose light. When God stops becoming a priority, we stop being thankful for the things and recognizing the things that He does, and we become prideful, we begin to lose light. In verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, although that's not a place too far down the road of sin, that is one that most of us are familiar with and will be familiar with multiple times in our lives. But it's these next phases that really begin to get a little scary that we definitely want to stay away from. Verse 23, and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Basically taking God and making him trying to fit us instead of us trying to fit God. I want you to think deeply about that one because this is one that is running rampant currently in the world right now instead of following god's laws everyone wants to take god's laws and bend them to follow what they are doing that's a part of the process it's been that way since the beginning of time this isn't anything new that we're going through paul is outlining it here in the the new testament thousands of years in the past when we change the glory of the uncorruptible god into an image made like unto corruptible man or when we make the truth fit us instead of us trying to fit the truth we begin to move further down the path of darkness verse 24 wherefore god also gave them up to and then mark this uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves at this point a person's lust the lust in their eyes the lust in their hearts begin to control them more than they control their lusts does that make sense at that point, they begin to just lose strength and power to resist temptation. Any kind of earthly, uh, natural man kind of lust of the, the flesh, they begin to give into to. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie. Again, there's more of that twisting of the truth. I'd have you mark that in verse 25. The next step then is to take God's truth and really twist it and change it so that it fits them again, but it is a lie, it is the opposite of what it is that he has taught. As an example, we see this with immorality, right? The world would say, well, that's a part of the natural process of, of dating and courtship, and you need to know if you're compatible physically before you ever get married, those kind of things. It's just, it's natural, so you should want to do it. Well, that's not God's laws. It never has been God's laws. That's the world taking God's truth and turning it into a lie. And the world's done that, and others have done that with multiple things. Verse 25, the second part of this I want you to mark as well. After who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Above the word creature, I just wrote the word creation. Creation. So that it would read, worship and serve the creation more than the creator. And that is one of the the next steps as a person moves down the path of darkness. Is instead of worshiping God, they begin to worship what he has created. And that could be anything. Now, some of the more obvious ones might be money and power and, and any kind of material possessions. Those can become a person's God. But one that I've seen more than any recently and that I think we'll continue to see is just the worship of the body. God created the body and we have a tendency to worship it more than we worship Him. We see this a lot on the internet today, social media, just constant outpouring of, of physical images whether it's those that are posting them or those that are looking at them, there is more than ever this need to worship, this draw to worship the human body, worshiping the creation more than the creator. Verse 26, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. I'd have you underline that next. It just leads to some very dark places as we continue on this path. Very vile, unnatural affections. And places that aren't good to be, or that God hasn't designed for us to be. Paul even goes into some of the specifics in those verses, but I'll let you read those for your own and see if you can figure out what it is that he's talking about in verses 26 and 27. Verse 28: And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. I would mark that. A reprobate mind is one that is weak that is unable to basically control the body, to control the appetites, to control the passions that are a part of living in a fallen world, a mind that is no longer in control. Instead of allowing God to prevail in our lives, the natural man has now prevailing in a person's life. Verse 29, then the floodgate opens, being filled with all unrighteousness. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Then Paul lists all the kinds of different things that, and that's the thing, is when you move towards the path of sin, it's not just one sin, it opens up the doors to everything else fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, mal- malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Um, <laughs> without understanding covenant breakers without natural affection in place implacable unmerciful and then the last step the one that is scariest is in verse 32 who knowing the judgment of god that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them that's the last thing i'd have you mark and the final step really on the path of sin is not only do we find pleasure in sin, but we find pleasure in influencing others to commit sin. That is a satanic place to be. It's one thing to hurt yourself. It's another thing to find joy in hurting others. It's one thing to become miserable yourself. It's another thing to find pleasure and joy in the misery of others. That is the process from start to finish of sin and the path of sin to complete darkness. And Paul outlines it beautifully in these verses. And I love that he gives us that because, one, it can help us to better see if we're ever on it and to make the course correction, any course correction necessary to get out of it. And one of the things I would just point out, which I think is very important to understand, in bringing light into the world, and bringing us to light... We see a pattern in the restoration that we can always follow and understand and look for as well. The apostasy signaled a period of of darkness. In fact, it culminated with the dark ages. And in order to bring light back, you remember how it started? It started by a young boy simply praying. Prayer began to open the door back for light to enter the world. After prayer, Joseph was given the objective of translating Scripture, the Book of Mormon. So you have prayer and then Scriptures. After that, the church was organized. Prayer, Scriptures, Church. In the church, the sacrament was instituted, and the the priesthood was restored, and then missionary work was instituted, and then temples were built. See that little bit of a process? When you start to feel light going out of your life, Chances are you can look and see that uh, the temple has began to become secondary in priority to other things. Uh, Maybe church attendance has began to, to drop off. And maybe worthiness has begun to keep the priesthood from being active in that person's life or home. And then from there, it's just a matter of time before scriptures start being read, and then before prayer begins to disappear. And then eventually, total darkness. And one of the things that I love about analyzing that process is to see the reverse and what's possible in it. You want to bring light back into your life? Prayer. Read your scriptures. Go to church. Invite the priesthood into your life. Go to the temple. And you will find that your life will become more filled with light. In fact, one of the things I would encourage you to do with this process that we just went through and all those things that you marked, take a moment just on your own and go through and see if you can come up with the opposite would be. For each of those, because there is an equal path to light as there is to darkness, to the point where at the very end, not only does a person find joy in doing righteousness, but finds greater joy and pleasure in supporting others to do the same. It's It really is the same process. One leads to light and life and the other one to darkness and death. Now, a couple key questions from this principle. I know it's a little bit longer, but it's just such an in-depth process I wanted to go through. Hopefully that's been helpful. Um, First question is maybe, how have you seen this process play out in a person's life for good or for bad? How have you experienced this process in your own life? Another question might be, what is the way out for us when we begin to walk down this path of sin? Which one of those things that we went through and marked have you seen the most in the world today? Why would allowing yourself to feel shame for the gospel of Jesus Christ be the first step? How would it open the door to all the others? How would not being ashamed of the gospel of Christ keep the door closed to that path? And maybe why can some see when they are moving away from God and others can't? What do you think can help us to see better when we begin to move down the wrong path? Now, for our last principle today, I'm just going to weave together several parts of this letter here in the book of Romans that really focuses on one of the things that Paul taught and encouraged the Roman saints to do and remind them that they were now doing, which is walking in a newness of life. But you see, one of the things I want to point out is the gospel is so much more than a list of actions that we're supposed to do, which is one of the reasons why we have seen such really a drastic change in the for strength of youth. I remember growing up and I remember teaching it as a teacher that it was basically a list. There was a, a list of things to do and things not to do and that was it. It is not that anymore because what the gospel really is meant to be is a choice. Not something that you have to do. Not something that you're supposed to do. Not something to do because everyone else is doing it. But something that you want to do because it's what you believe. And it's what you want for yourself. The gospel is about change. And that change happens on the inside and is reflected on the outside. It's a little harder to see because of that. But the change that God is most interested in isn't in what we are doing but in how we are as a person on the inside. Because he knows when that change happens on the inside, everything on the outside will fall into place. Christ wants you and me to give him our heart. See, he points that out in verses 21 through 22 when he says, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thou thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? In other words, it's not about what we say, but it's about what we are. That is what the gospel is all about. Verse 28, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. That's what Paul wants for each of us to do. That's what he wants for the members of Rome to do, to give their heart to God. And it starts by, ironically, not being ashamed of him. And you know what also helps with that? Turn over to chapter 5. Tribulation actually helps. Here's another one of those little gold nuggets, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, which reads, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Might be something worth remembering the next time you go through something hard, understanding that those kinds of things. We might even want to try to develop the mindset to be grateful for because through that tribulation we have the opportunity through those afflictions through those trials To develop and work patience and through patience we gain experience and through experience We gain hope because we learn to recognize That God does keep his promises that he does support those that love him and that follow him And he helps them get through hard things and from that hope It increases our faith, it increases our trust, and it helps to make us not ashamed. And we begin to further go down the path of light and the path of change. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul asks the saints and all of us the the question of questions. What shall we say then? After teaching them all this, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He gives a beautiful metaphor about baptism. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He wants us to walk the path of life, the path of light the path that leads to joy and happiness into Him, and not the path that leads to the other place that we just spent a little bit of time going over. And another great nugget that he teaches is in verse 16 and 17 when he says, "'Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God bethink that ye were the servants of sin,' But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. This path, whether it leads to light or dark, is one that each of us will choose to go on. And chances are that we'll probably end up going on the path of sin a little bit here and a little bit there. That's a part of the process. Remember Elder Holland taught that sometimes the best way to find our way from point A to point B is by way of C. And that in a lot of ways summarizes God's plan. We are here to gain experience that we might at times experience the bitter so that we can better know the sweet. But I will tell you this, the sooner that we resolve to let God prevail in our lives, the better off we'll be, the happier we'll be, the more successful we'll be the more that we will walk down that path of righteousness and light that leads to Him. As he concludes, or we conclude at least, this particular section of the book of Romans, verse 23, he reminds us in the end that the choice is always and still is ours to make. But to understand that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Gosh, I just love the book of Romans. I love Paul for his directness, for his boldness, in really just saying how it is. Although we live at a very different time period, I hope that if nothing else today, you can better see, young people, that the, the scriptures are not something that are old-fashioned. These processes have been in place since the very beginning of time. They just look a little bit different. But Paul has nailed perfectly What happens when a person goes down the path of sin and the opportunity that we all have to repent and instead walk down the path of light? Now, the last couple key questions I'll give you for this particular principle is, first of all, what does it mean to you to walk in a newness of life? I want you to consider that. What does it really mean? Number two, how can you better utilize the gift of repentance and baptism through the sacrament each week to walk in that newness of life? How have you seen the wages for sin in a person's life being death? In what ways have you seen that play out? How have you seen the wages for following Christ play out in a person's life as well? What does it mean to you to let God prevail? I am coming to love that phrase more and more ever since I heard it from President Nielsen. And last, how can you better let God prevail in your own life? I hope these questions have been helpful. I hope these principles have been helpful to you. There are so many more golden nuggets throughout these chapters. I just encourage you to grab that pencil and marker. Go through and and look for those. And find them for yourself. Because each golden nugget of truth that you find adds to who you are as a person. And goes into your heart. Goes into your mind. And helps you to become better determined to follow Christ. And to not be ashamed of Him. As always, remember that that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, and prestige, although those things are easily caught up in. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master, Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life. And as always, He invites us all to come follow me. So what do you say we follow him better this week and become better as we follow him? Till next week, everyone, have a great week. I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.